You're listening to Internet Marketing for Smart People Radio. I am Robert Bruce, and today we're getting back to part two of a conversation I had with one of the best working copywriters in the world, John Carlton. Before we get into these final questions for John, I want to remind those of you listening that this show is brought to you, as always, by the Internet Marketing for Smart People course. This is our completely free 20-part online marketing course delivered straight to your inbox. It's the very best of CopyBlogger. We've wrapped this up, over six years of CopyBlogger content, into 20 emails that we're dripping out to you about once a week. If you want in, it's very easy. Just head over right now to copyblogger.com. Scroll down to about the middle of the homepage there where you're going to see a headline, Grab Our Free 20-Part Internet Marketing Course. Drop your email address into the little box, and we'll take care of the rest for you. All right, let's get on with part two of my interview with John Carlton. Give us some of the basic elements of good copywriting as you see it, as you've learned it. Uh, Give us a quick handful of Carlton Copywriting 101 principles. Now, Robert, you had you were gracious enough to warn me about this question, so I actually wrote a few things down. Uh, I made a couple of notes. So number one, I actually addressed, it's be the adult. When you, as a copywriter, whether you are the staff copywriter or you're the hired gun freelancer that comes in or it's your own business, and that's, by the way, that's the hardest writing you'll ever do in your life is for your own stuff. Uh, I I have a saying that, that I tell freelancers, all clients suck. And the caveat to that is when when you are your own client, you suck the worst of all. So I am the worst client I've ever had for myself. So that's just something to keep in mind. But the idea of being the adult in the room, when you walk in and you are a freelancer and you know what needs to be done to create the ads that will actually get results for your client, again, whether your client is a, a guy you're working for permanently or whether it's a freelance position or whether it's yourself, in most cases... Freelancers tend to be a little timid. Uh, they tend to be introverts. They tend to, you know, take the job because they like writing and, wor- and working alone mostly, and, and they're uncomfortable in asserting themselves too much. And that is nonsense. As a freelancer, it's your job to get out there and make sure the client understands that you do know what's going on. You, it's, it'd be like the plumber coming in suggesting, well, I can stop the leak. But I, rec- you know, I recommend that you use this particular thing, but you may want to use a different type of you know, plumbing material, whatever. No, if you know what needs to be done, you just go do it. And that's where it should be in right. So being the adult in the room means that you take control of the situation because probably other people aren't. Even if there are other alpha males in there, if the, if the client, if the CEO of the company, if the guy you're working for is a blustery alpha uh, you know, silverback male who tries to bully everybody and wants to have his way, that's fine. But you, you're getting paid, so you want to make it clear to him through the fact that he's paying you money, through the fact that you are the expert, you need to be the adult in the room. And that's a process that a lot of writers have to go through to get to the point where they can confidently just say, that's fine that you want to do it this way, but that's the wrong way to do it. Here's how I'm going to do it, or here's how you know I strongly urge you to do it, and then you write the ad. And that's why I say a lot of the ads, my most famous ads, have all been met with disbelief, shock, and hair-pulling panic by clients who refused to run it, who didn't want to run the ad, who were afraid to run it. And it was only when the results came in that they realized that they could handle the little bit of blowback they got from this stuff. So being the adult in the room is huge. The gun to the head thing I, I brought up before. With a gun to your head, writing, if, if, if you know, imagining that a gun that will go off if the ad doesn't work, you do not 
you, you do not stray from the fundamental principles of great advertising, which go back to Cloud Hopkins in the 20s, actually even before that, from the time a caveman traded up to a better cave with a view in exchange for a slab of mastodon beef. That was basic street-level salesmanship going on. You want to stay with that classic salesmanship. Uh, with, with a gun to the head, you don't get cute. You may test stuff, but for getting a control for right out of the blocks, you want to do basic, fundamental, straight-ahead salesmanship that worked before is probably going to work in the future. Um, also, Operation Money Suck. That's the, uh, the, the concept of going after the money. Uh, the, in the, adverti- in the uh, direct response advertising world of agencies, they have an award called the John Caples Award or the Caples Award. That is presented to the best direct response uh, ad of the year. About 15 years ago, they stopped having results be part of the judging. And I just lost it. I have not dealt with an agency since then. I, I, it's so ridiculous. They, they used to say it had to be a great ad that everybody loved, and it had to work. And then you could win this John Caples war. I mean, John Caples was a guy who was all about results. Then they decided, ah, geez, this is like limiting us. and We can't like give the award to these really fun, funny, entertaining ads. You know, uh, 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 most of these ads were, were, were TV ads. Uh, if, if results matter, because a lot of these funny, entertaining ads don't work. So, you know, that, that was the disconnect, and that's a disconnect that still happens in most agencies. Most agencies don't have a clue how to do direct response advertising. They think it's all about entertainment. They are really clueless. Um, so Operation Money Suck means stay focused on this. It's not about, it's not about being – it's an ad. It's not a work of art. It's a communication device to let prospects know that you have what they need and to close the deal. Uh, third, the fourth thing is story, um, story, salesmanship, and psychology. That's the basic, uh, nature of great, uh, direct response, uh, advertising. It's you, you tell a story here. It it can be as simple as here's what I've got. Here's why it it matches your needs perfectly. And here's what you need to do to get it. You're still telling a story. It's the same language, the same words that you would use face to face with a prospect that you just met in an elevator at, at a, at, at, at a party on the street somewhere. You overhear somebody saying something that they express a problem that you happen to have the product that solves. What would you say to them? And how that conversation goes is how your ad should go. So it's story. It's basic salesmanship. You, it's your job. If you have a product, a service, or information that will help a prospect's life, if he has a problem that is, most problems are at some level of trauma, from very low trauma, like he needs to get nails to finish the playhouse for his daughter out back, but he can't finish it till he gets those nails, so he needs nails, now he's shopping for nails. If you have that information, it's your job to get it to him. If he has a health problem, and you have information that will help him solve that health problem, uh, it could be a very high level of trauma, but it's your job, and present Presenting it in a story form, closing the deal, and using whatever psychology you need to use to get them to do it. Most people, it's it's kind of perverse, and this is getting kind of deep, but people will not act in their best interest. They they will say, you know what, I have this problem. I I understand you have a product that that solves it, and it sounds good, and I really should get it, but I'm gonna think about it. 
and I'm not ready to go. So it's your job as a as a as a copywriter to close the deal to get past those objections because and that's where guarantees come in and things like that where you take away all the objections he has to actually getting it so he can actually get this thing in his hands and then make his decision. If he doesn't like it, he can send it back and you want to be ethical about it. But you do need to do some things to get it in their hands because people are slow to act. Uh, I call them uh, uh, large synambulant blobs welded to the couch, so invested in laziness that they won't get up and leave the the house if it's on fire. And you have to get them to move and take out a credit card and, and, and actually order and wait for the thing to come. And that is not an easy thing. Most rookie writers can get a prospect to say, yeah, that sounds pretty good. You know, maybe someday down the road, maybe I'll, I'll think seriously about buying that. That's what I call getting them up on the fence. The pros know how to knock them off the fence. Because getting someone to admit that what you've got is pretty good, that's easy. Getting them to actually shell out cash and buy it is that next step, and that's the next level, and that separates the pros from, from, from the rookies. And that involves understanding the psychology of the sale. So that's that's very important to do. Uh, I talked about all clients sucking. Uh, the, the reason I say all clients suck is that just, you know, go into these relationships knowing it's an adult relationship. Uh, you, they don't have to like you. You don't have to become best friends, although I have become friends with, with, with a number of my clients, but only long-term ones over a long period of time. But this is not a social situation. This is helping a business. This is this is taking care of capitalism at its most basic, fundamental uh, elements. So knowing that clients suck just removes all of that stuff. Yeah, you know, yeah, they're going to want to pay you as little as possible. They're going to want to push the deadlines to crushing uh, uh, levels, and they they want the best you can do for the for less money than you want, and they want all of these things, and that's fine. Just work through that. That doesn't mean you have to take less. That doesn't mean you have to agree to their deadlines. Just know that they're, it's, it's an inherently hostile relationship. They want things that you don't want, and you need things to happen that they would prefer don't happen, such as paying you a lot of money. So once you understand that, then you're off to the races because you can have great, civil, wonderful relationships with clients once he knows who's boss. And you know who's boss? Your boss. You know how to write. You know what needs to be done. You're the expert coming in. You're the hired gun. You walk in. You know what should be done, and you're, you got the skills to do it, and then you do it. So you have to put yourself in a position that the boss understands you are the guy to do this. Lastly, I would recommend that everybody keep their BS detectors uh, on high alert all the time. Writers should be more aware of what's going on in the world, what's going on, on in the psychology of their markets than everyone else. They should know more than the CEO or the client they're working with, more than the guys who are actually selling the stuff because a lot of times the actual salesmen are doing that unconsciously. Um, so you want to keep your BS detectors really high and not take anything for granted. Double check stuff and make sure that that it, it, it works in your world. And your world is your toolbox of skills, knowledge, and psychological insights. And finally, reality checks. A good writer, writers 
writing is the best gig on earth because you have to have an examined life. I think it was Aristotle that said the only life worth living is the closely examined life. And that means you have to look in places that other people maybe are uncomfortable looking. You have to be aware not of how you wish the world was or how you think the world ought to be, but rather you look at the world as it really is. You look at not what humans say they will do, but what they actually do. When asked, a number of humans will say, yeah, I would buy that product in a focus group. That's why most direct response guys don't like focus groups. They're not lying. They really believe they would buy it. But you don't care. You want to see what the behavior is. That's why results matter. You can write a great ad. Everybody you know, all your buddies, your golfing buddies, your wife, your neighbors, the client, everybody will say, this is the best ad we've ever seen. It's going to be great. If it doesn't actually pull, then it's not a great ad. It doesn't matter what people think. It's how people act. So that, that would be the, the, the big thing is the BS detectors and the reality checks. Sound a little bit like Hemingway there, Mr. Carlton. All right, John, let's get even more specific. Mm-hmm. It's largely accepted that the headline, either in an email or uh, the headline of a landing page, a blog post, or even a tweet, is the most crucial element in writing copy that sells. Mm-hmm. How do you write your headlines? What's your process? And if you would, could you please tell us the story of the one-legged golfer? Sure. First of all, I usually spend the same amount of time on the headlines I do in the copy. Now, after 30 years of writing, I will occasionally sit down and write linearly. I'll write a headline, I'll write a subhead, and I'll get into the copy and write down. Usually, though, and or excuse me, the more normal way that I wrote throughout my career was in pieces. I might write a headline idea and then put it aside. That was a chunk of the final ad uh, that was separate from the opening paragraphs, that was separate from the sales part, that was separate from the mass of bullets in the middle, which is like uh, the the proof. I guess the old thing, uh, AIDA, uh, AIDA, uh, you get attention, you instill interest, interest, and then desire, and then action. You can kind of break an ad down into that. And if you treat them separately, almost no right, almost no, none of the top writers I know wrote linearly. No, but you don't start with, you know, hi, my name is Bob and go on. I mean, you may write that, but then you stop at the end of that and you might jump down and actually do the actual sales pitch, the last page of of the copy, and then come back and do the middle. I, I wrote bullets first. After I'd get all steeped up, I'd write bullets, and I'd write pages and pages of bullets that maybe a third or half would make it into the final piece, maybe even less than that. But that helped me cement everything in my head. From there, I might go and write headlines, and I would write headlines throughout the the process of writing the piece because they would change. I would start with a how-to headline which is the most fundamental and often the one you wind up with. Often the first headlines I come up with are the ones that I wind up with. But I would then write 50 to 100 more headlines. Some of them takeoffs on that original headline, some of them wildly different. I would try to get past what I knew would work. I'd use, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd get funny, I'd get filthy, I'd get outrageous, I would make stuff up and do it be, and, what, you know, just go way over the line because, you know, nobody's going to see this but me and this was, uh, this was effective brainstorming. And sometimes in those wild, uh, outrageous headlines, I would find the one that would really work and I would walk it back slowly and, st- and, and come up with a headline that was still more, way more outrageous than a simple, you know, how to do something better type of headline. It would be much more outrageous than that, but wouldn't be quite as outrageous as the one that I couldn't, you know, that I'd go to jail if I, if I actually had, had, had run. 
So uh, you spend a lot of time, you write a lot of that stuff, and and you're absolutely right about tweets and Facebook posts and and uh, subject lines of emails being headlines. It's the compact delivery of either the curiosity. Uh, which means that you're kind of blind. You're saying, "Here, you know, you know, do, do you realize you're making a mistake that's going to murder your business by this time tomorrow?" You know, if you had that kind of that kind of curiosity value, or you can be very specific and, and say, "Here's here's th- three ways you can double the amount of traffic that looks at your website by this time tomorrow afternoon." Um, and, and then you deliver the three ways and, you know, there's, there's various things or, you know, whatever. There's a lot of things you do, but you have to understand how that is done. And it's not just sitting down and ripping them out. Uh, I will write emails. I, I, I still think I, I was one of the first guys to write sales emails. I still think I do some of the best ones around, but they are different than what a lot of other people do. So uh, if you get on my email list, you will see how I do it differently. I, I do. It's, it's based on excellent writing. But, Robert, as you alluded to, the, the, the importance is in the subject line. It's how I bring people in. And I do it kind of intuitively now, but it's a process. And it's, it's, it's bringing people in. It's understanding the competition that they have. 400 maybe other emails in their inbox uh, competing for their attention. So your competition isn't just other people in your market. It's every other email they get. It's all of this stuff going on. And if they're on marketing lists, they're getting some of the cleverest, savviest, most cutthroat, shark-infested marketing (laughs) possible, which means that you're up against some of the best um, headline and you know subject line writers in the business. So so by not understanding that, you are essentially walking downtown into a dark alley with uh, dollar bills pasted on the outside of your suit, and you know whistling happily as you're going off to your death. So don't do that. Get hip to to how things are written and how they're done. Real quick, the uh, headline you're talking about, the one-legged golfer. Uh, I had a client who had a first his first. Uh, he was doing his first instructional golf video. It was the first one he was doing. And I looked at it and it was basically a boring, here's how to improve your golf game. And I thought, well, this is kind of boring. So I wanted to interview the guy. So I interviewed the actual talent, the guy who was the expert, quote unquote, who was on this video. That's how old this was. It was a video. It wasn't a DVD. And uh, he was saying, you know, here's how to do this stuff. And he's, t- and I'm going, and, and about 45 minutes into the interview where he's talking about this triple coil power swing or whatever that he's doing. I said, how, how did you figure this out? How did, how did you get the inspiration for this thing? He says, ah, oh, nobody wants to hear that story. That's, you know, I tell that and people roll their eyes. I say, I, w- I want to hear the story. How did you come across the, the epiphany, the inspiration for this? He says, well, I was golfing one day behind this foursome and one of the guys only had one leg. And as he hopped up to the first tee to tee off, I thought he's going to fall over when he swings. And he didn't. He, he had perfect uh, balance and he hit this great 300-yard drive right down the center of the, of the fairway and I had this epiphany that what how he was balancing would would work even better for two-legged golfers and he says but nobody wants to hear that story it's nonsense and I said that is the hook I recognize that as the hook that I would need to lead mm-hmm. people in so the headline became uh, the amazing secrets of a, a one-legged golfer that can instantly eliminate hooks and slices and increase your drives by 40 yards or something I, I forget the exact headline and after that, I taught my client how to look for hooks. So they were so fascinated how well this ad worked. It ran, it's still running. It, it, it ran in, in the uh, golf magazines for 15 years and it's still running online uh, with, without much change to it. Um, 
And I taught the client how to look for hooks because I had to work pretty hard to find these hooks. You have to be able to recognize them when they came. Now, I call myself the most respected and ripped off copywriter online because, because you know, as I taught people how to write, and in that book, um, Kick-Ass Copywriting Secrets of a Marketing Rebel, I talk about that headline, the one-legged golfer. And suddenly a lot of ads started cropping up about the one-legged accountant, you know, who can teach you how to, you know, cheat on your taxes. Right, and the, right. The one-legged everything. And, you know, the one-legged accountant doesn't, you know, that's not a hook. Because it doesn't matter whether he has one leg or not. It doesn't matter if he's a head in a jar somewhere, you know, but it matters for golf because, you know, you would think it's a disconnect. It's what I call the incongruous um, juxtaposition of compelling sales elements. So the incongruity is very, very important. So it might be a, uh, an accountant who was declared brain dead, you know, last week. That would count because his brain is what works. So you have to understand how this stuff works. But once you do, then you're off to the races. And I taught my client who knew nothing about writing how to look for hooks. And he started coming back to me with these, with these great new talents that he found for golf that all of them ha- had a hook. That one guy crawled off of his deathbed. He was literally thinking he was going to die on, on one day. Then he rallied and he crawled off his deathbed and went in and qualified for the uh, U.S. Open in Los Angeles and actually competed and, and, and made money uh, at, at the U.S. Open after thinking he was going to be dead by, by that time. And you know, he didn't want to tell that story to my client. My client related it to me, says, John, I think I got the hook. And sure enough, that's what went into the headline. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. And that goes back to what you were talking about, research, um, uh, defeating, uh, well, we don't believe in writer's block, but defeating the idea of writer's block. In that research, all the research, everything you pick up, those hooks, those things are going to be coming out more and more. Mm -hmm. Okay. Last question for you. If you could only give just a handful of advice to, say, a starving copywriter out there who's staring at the next 30 years and wondering how he or she's going to proceed in their craft and in their business, what would it be? Wow. You know, and, and I am dedicated to this. There's a lot of free, there's a lot of information out there that I, I came up in my career, no mentors, there were no books. The, the word freelance copywriter wasn't even known in, in the general public. Um, there were very few, I was in Los Angeles. There were a handful. I got to meet every successful freelance copywriter there. There were five of us. And we, did, we didn't even know each other existed. We met by accident at a, uh, at a uh, advertising guild meeting. And now it's the opposite. There's tons of stuff out there. And my blog goes back, uh, I think, seven years of solid free archive. So there's a lot of free information out there. Uh, I know that Brian you know, has, has, has a lot of great stuff. There's a lot of good free information. Now, the, so new writers now have the opposite problem. They've got too much information. How do you tell, you know, do you hop on to uh, the forums out there and start hanging out with other writers and stuff? And how do you tell the nonsense from that? Well, that's where the BS detector comes in. I would suggest that the most important thing for a young writer would be networking. Now, I didn't even know what networking was when I started out, but I was doing it. When I made a connection with another, with a graphic designer, for example, or with another uh, writer or with an ad agency, like, like the head of an ad agency who liked me, I would start to work them. And, I, you know, and I'd let them know that I'm available for other jobs and I would call them and I would ingratiate myself and learn how to bond. 
and do things. So networking is hugely important and it's the number one overlooked thing. I, I recently redid my uh, freelance course. It's a course that I wrote for, for just for freelance writers. And I had, I took a, a half a dozen or so of my best performing students who are all wildly successful freelance copywriters. Now many of them have moved on to their own businesses and asked them to write short pieces that went into the new edition of the freelance course about what their main success thing is besides getting the information of how to write and honing their skill. And it all came down to networking. It all came down to taking the risk, going to seminars, meeting other writers, getting your networks together, uh, actually working. You know, if you have a client and the client likes you and you never talk to him again, you're a freaking idiot. You should be not just asking him for more work or making sure that you're available to him as a consultant or doing other stuff, but have him introduce you to other people. There, you know, it's it, businessmen are happy to do that. Businesses out there are starved for good copy, starving, and and businesses are going belly up every every second of every day because they don't know how to create an ad to bring in to turn prospects into customers or to even find the, the prospects in the first place. So by networking, you you start to expand yourself. Now a lot of the writers, there was a golden age of seminars that has kind of fizzled and may be coming back, but during the last I don't know, five or six years, there, there was a seminar every month somewhere from, you know, Dan Kennedy to, uh, you know, to, to a, a lot of the online guys, you know, they're, they're having seminars and you could go there as a writer and pay the money and just go and hang out in the hallways and talk to people, hand your card out and let people know that you, you know how to write. You know, that was a way that a lot of my uh, students found work right off the bat. They became very successful. And through that, they networked with other people. So they would find one client in one, in one niche. They would become an expert in that niche. Then they would go out to other uh, marketers in that niche and say, I've already written a successful ad for this. You know, how about, you know, if you need writing, you should hire me and start to, start to build on that. And that's part of the salesmanship process. Uh, and it, you don't need to get stuck in one niche, but you can become very good in one niche and in another niche niche. I was great in multiple niches uh, throughout my career. It wasn't that big of a deal. Once I broke the back or broke down the the basic problem of being able to sell to a specific niche uh, market, then it was easy to do it for another thing. So learning how to sell to golfers, I could sell to bodybuilders, I could sell to gun fanatics, I could sell to guys who rode motocross, you know, mo- motorcycles. It's, it's, it, it, once you start breaking it down, you, you, you figure that out. So networking is the number one thing. As far as the amazing amount of mentoring going on out there, um, my advice is to pick a Pick a guy you like and get kind of steeped in what he's doing. That doesn't mean you can't look at what other writers are doing, but there's so many different styles out there and there's, and there is conflicting information of how to address something. So find a writer that you're simpatico with who is, who has either has like a blog or has teaching stuff or uh, is, is available for, for mentoring or what, Whatever the process, even if you just, you know, I, I mentored under several writers early in my career who didn't know I was, they were mentors to me because I would find their writing and study it and break it down. Gary Benzavinga, you know, probably the greatest living direct response copywriter in the game. He's, he's since retired, but he's just a monster. I used to take his pieces 
and break them down. I would I would break down the way he did bullets, the way he did teaser copy, the way he did headlines, and just he became you know, and he didn't even realize this. He was you know, uh, he, he thought it was funny later because he he respected me as a writer later on. But I said I said, dude, I wouldn't have gotten this far with my reputation if I hadn't taken your stuff and broken it down and figured out how you wrote a damn good uh, bullet. I mean, he, he's the guy that kind of taught me how, and I realized there was this one-two punch, and I, I can go on for an hour about how, how to write a, a good bullet, but I focused on him, and I didn't write like him. I didn't try to copy him, but I kept him in mind when I wrote. So through that gun to the head, through that preparation, and through that idea that it was kind of like, you know, you know, would Gary agree with this? Would 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 Ben Zavinga agree with me that, that I'm doing this? So I di- I never wrote like him, but I used him as as a mentor. So I would recommend that, and that helped me because there were a dozen other guys I could have done that with, but I felt simpatico with him. I understood him. So when I wrote for Jim Rutz as a ghostwriter later, he was a totally different writer, wildly different writer. Told longer stories, went off on tangents. Very very both of them were very successful. Completely different copywriters, but I understood that. Okay, now I need to shift from from that other kind kind of writing to this kind of writing. And I understood how to get in there and figure it out and study it. And I began to write in ways that, that Jim Rutz would, would agree with. And then, so when I started working with Gary Halbert, a third writer who was radically different than the other two, I was able to understand that, okay, now there's this you know new way of approaching it. And it was much easier. It was a very short learning curve to be able to figure out what they're doing because I understood what they were doing. It was all broken down. So networking and breaking down the process as much as you can so none of it is a mystery. You you shouldn't be mystified by why a writer, you know, uses a how-to headline or why he writes bullets in a certain way or how he has constructed a pitch, whether it's a video sales letter or just a written letter or, you know, however, you know, if it's a launch, you know, launch is a sales letter turned sideways, you know, so you get rather than one long linear um, uh, uh, sales pitch, you get it, you know, dosed out, you know, in, in, in chunks as you go along. But still, if you took it, mished it all together, what, what, you know, is leaked out over a period of two weeks is actually just a straight ahead uh, sales piece. And and once you realize that, then all the mystery fades away and you realize, oh, that's why he did this. That's why he did that. It's like listening to music. A lot of people listen to music and it's just, it's this pleasant thing that makes them feel a certain way. And that's all they know about it. Other people, and mo- a lot of the copywriters I know, by the way, are musicians too. That you want to break it down. You know, what, what instrument is that? How is he playing that? What what chord? Uh, what, what chords are they playing? What is the you know what what, what uh, mode is he soloing in? You know how is the production done? You know how many instruments are there? You know how is this done? You start breaking it down, and that increases your enjoyment of music. Also allows you to be able to create it yourself. Does that make sense, Robert? It does, and I want to bring up one more thing on the mentorship. Uh, don't forget, as you mentioned earlier, those old uh, dead guys make good mentors too, right? Maybe yeah, maybe the best. The- yeah, you know, when I started out, that's a really good point, Robert. The, all the mentors I had, uh, John Caples, uh, David Ogilvie was still alive, but he died soon after I um, uh, got got into the game. And uh, uh, Claude Hopkins had been dead for decades, and Robert Collier had been dead for, for 10 years. So, um, yeah. You were, they, uh, Eugene uh, Schwartz was still around when you were starting, right? Yes. Yep. Yes, he was. And uh, a number of the guys. And, uh, and what was interesting, you know, I have a videotape somewhere of David Ogilvie from the 
creative guild down in Los Angeles was doesn't exist anymore. It was kind of like a uh, intervention group for advertising people. And they'd meet, you know, the every first Tuesday <laughs> of every month and sit around and complain about stuff and 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 share insights. And they had David Ogilvie come and talk. And I made two realizations. Wow. One, they, one, these guys are approachable. Uh, David Ogilvy, you know, in the last part of his career, wasn't being asked to be. He he was on a David Letterman show I, when David Letterman had a late, very like a midnight show, and you know, Letterman didn't know who he was and was kind of disrespectful and interrupted and wouldn't let him tell his story. Mm. And I thought, wow, what a ignoble way to to go out. And but he also, when he was in Los Angeles, they said, hey, you want to stop by and, and speak at this guild? You know, it's like there'd be like forty people. And he said, yeah. And he and he went and he spoke. And mm. they made a videotape. And I got the only videotape. I asked the 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 president of the creative guild. I said, I said, God, can I get a copy of the tape? She goes, here, you can have the tape. You know, it's just Ogilvy. Oh man. And, and I, well, but it wasn't a very good. It was an interview with him, and it, it was just you know, it's pretty much what he had done in his writings. But for yeah. me, it was like wow. And it was a bad videotape and sure. I don't know where it is it's somewhere I probably should have kept it but I didn't have any copyrights to it anyway my point my point is you know even the most famous guys they are approachable although you have to be respectful I get people asking me all the time uh, and this this is my last piece of advice they come to me and they say I'll do anything to work with you or to you know to get mentored by you or something like that and that, that's not what I want to hear that just dumps it in my lap you know it's just I don't I don't need another puppy dog and I, I don't need I don't need somebody coming to me and telling me you know uh, how wonderful it would be to have a career like mine so I, I don't need to hear this stuff and I don't you know I don't need the trouble of having to make up stuff for you to do I did mentor somebody as recently as last year and I mentored them for about six months he was a British guy in London and he came to me and he said tell you what I will try trade you 10 hours a week that I will work for you for free for one one hour phone call a week where I can ask you anything, anything I want. Hmm. And I said, yeah, because my phone calls right now, you know, are 2,500 bucks uh, for, for a consultation. So it was equivalent of that. And I was getting a lot more than that in uh, expert writing stuff. And the guy became like my virtual assistant for, for a while. But he came to me not with a problem, but with a solution. And that is very rare. Uh, I've never been approached like that before. It's the way I approached Jay Abraham, the way I uh, I went to, to Halbert when I went with him. You know, I, 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 it's you can't just announce yourself and say I'm I'm the next greatest writer, and you should be you know you should mentor me you know because then you'll get credit for it. You know, it's like no, I I don't need any more ego ridden writers, and I don't need any more. Uh, people with problems with self-esteem and I don't need any of that stuff. So get your, get your act together, go as far as you can. And if you find a writer that you are simpatico with, that you like his style, that you can follow them, then immerse yourself in it. There, there's a lot of writing out there. You never need to talk to them. You never need to get private mentoring. You, you may never need to buy their actual stuff, although you probably should. Uh, the first money you make, you should be reinvesting into your, uh, into your uh, uh, education, and the education goes on for for the rest of your life. But there's a lot of opportunities out there to do it. It's just be aware that there's conflicting information out there. Not all writers write the same, and just keep breaking it down and keep working towards, you know, developing who you are. Don't decide what kind of a writer you are if you're a rookie. Um, uh, you, you know, you talk about uh, you know staring at the next thirty years and wondering how to proceed in your craft and your business. 
You know, you take it one step at a time, you do the smart stuff and you start paying attention to what the successful guys have done. And they did it through networking and they did it through getting better all the time. And those things I talked about, like being the adult in the room, riding with a gun to the head and devoting yourself to this. It's not hard. I, I, I you know, I, I'm a lazy guy. I, you know, I was working, you know, in the height of my freelance career, I was taking three to six months off a year to go play in bad biker bar uh bands so i would play for play play in these cd bars and i do it for six months at a time and not even think about business and then come back and my clients are glad to see me come back and i'd find new clients and that all changed when i became a guru quote unquote and i started having to do monthly newsletters and take care of stuff but uh, i'm back to it again after, after 10 years of being a guru i'm back to taking off a lot of time working a few hours a week but those are intense hours and i get more done in two hours in a day writing when i'm prepped sitting down than most writers get done in a month so once you once you realize once you have all these realizations come down and you start getting really good at what you're doing you, you recognize you are the linchpin to the success that, that businesses crave. They need it. They're starved for good writing. So, so make yourself a good writer first. Network. Never lie. Never do anything unethical. Be that professional that people need. And by the way, I, I will leave you with the professional's code that, that I kind of invented, although it's not new, but this is the way I've been saying it. You are where you said you'd be when you said you'd be there, having done what you said you'd do. Very, very simple. That encompasses deadlines, that encompasses meetings, that encompasses everything. If you got a 10 o'clock meeting, you're there at, at a quarter tell. Uh, you're prepared. If you got a deadline, you meet it, even if you have to stay up all night, even if you have to... Um, you know, you have to forego everything else. Business before pleasure. That's that's one of the early things that I did. So, uh, you know, just just you know, I, I would suggest that people go over and check out my blog, john-carlton.com. Uh, there's a dash in there because I didn't grab John the John Carlton straight URL in time and some woodworker in Boston got it, <laughs> who has high search engine rankings, by the way. I bet uh, I bet he does. <laughs> but it's John-Carlton.com. Sign up. You know, there's it's easy and, I, and you'll get notifications when new blogs are up and notifications about things I'm doing or I'm speaking and things. I'm speaking much less. I'm speaking at Kennedy's thing uh, in the fall and uh, scaled way back, but I'm I I, I'm very visible. I'm out there a lot. I'm doing a lot of things. You know, I, I love doing these kind of interviews with, with guys like you. Um, so th that would be my only recommendation. And I do have things that will be, you know, available soon. So it's, it's, it's always good to stay in the, uh, uh, stay in the uh, 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 jet stream of what guys like me are doing. There aren't many like me left. Uh, most of us are retiring, leaving the field, and I've got I've got many years left in me, but I'm you know I'm taking it slower and I'm not being quite as involved. And you know so so take advantage of this rare opportunity. There are still some guys who have uh, feet in both worlds: the old classic world of of advertising, which is pre-web, and highly steeped in the online world. I was one of the pioneers online. The early websites I created because just from intuition are still being used with you know with with testimonials running down both sides, the wall of testimonials, the way things are done. It's not that I'm any kind of genius. It's this it was just gun to the head. It was just straight ahead. Let me get the message out in the most uh, awesome, uh, effective of uh, 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 a solid salesmanship way that I can and 
that's that's really all I got to say. I'm kind of talked out yeah. here. Right? Well, there's not many of you left. I agree, and I uh, I for one am glad you're still around. And I hope you got. Uh, I hope you're going to be around. You could probably just disappear if you wanted to, but I hope you're going to be around for a long, long time because uh, it's good. It's good having you here, and I uh, appreciate you uh, very much coming on. Uh, today. Let's get out of here. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Um, like John said, if you want to get more of him online, you can find him at john-carlton.com. I'll have that link in the show notes as well. Uh, if the show does something to you or for you, please jump over to iTunes and give us a rating or a comment. Uh, when you get the chance, it's always very much appreciated. Mr. Carlton, thank you for coming by today. I really appreciate it. Robert, it was a pleasure speaking with you, and I hope to speak with you again soon. You bet. Let's do it. Okay, bye-bye. One, two, three.